I didn't actually write down the stuff for insomnia, but I think I, oh no, or woman in the window. Well, it's going to be a knowledge light episode. It's fine. It always is with you. Oh my <laughs> God. So it's not fine, is it? You should keep that in at the beginning. <laughs> Three, two, one. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my chocolate factory. And I should warn you that one of us always tells the truth and one of us always lies. Welcome to Fans Labyrinth, the podcast where we talk about your favorite indie films and genre flicks. I am your host, Lydia, and this is my co-host, Joseph. Hey, hi, and how are you? I nailed that. <laughs> you think so? That's good. That's all that matters to me. Your opinion is of little consequence. <laughs> Being so mean Today's going to be... Bit of a a Nolan fat Nolan, oh my God, Nolan. Fast. Do you wanna do you wanna roll that back? Gonna do a take two. Yeah, we gotta Nolan. reverse. <laughs> yeah, reverse time a bit. Oh, time man. inversion. But yeah, we we watched Tenant and a cup uh, together and a couple other Nolans. So that'll be for later in the episode. But for now, what have you been up to? How have it? How has it been going, Lydia? Oh, it's been, it's been okay. I have a lot of ants in my apartment. Ants? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was hearing, I thought you were going to say angst or something. Well, that too. Um, but that's always here. You know, I've learned to live yeah. with my own angst. Oh, I've been there. Just can yeah. feel the angst. Yeah. <laughs> my like vaguely minimalist apartment. So angsty. No, I have a lot of ants in my apartment, uh, which has been aggravating. Um, I haven't seen any in the last couple of days because I sprayed, which I always feel mm. weirdly like really guilty about because those ants are just trying to live, you know, no. they're just trying to do their thing. Um, but I don't want them on my counters or like me, so they have to die. Pretension right from the get go. I had a friend who uh, wrote a paper on how insecticide and killing insects and whatnot is a form of microfascism. So fun, fun stuff. Good paper, actually. Well, it's fine. I'm a tiny ant fascist. Yeah, tiny tyrant. Yeah, I'm okay with that. It's probably the only real power I'm ever going to have, so. <laughs> I decide Dream when big. the ants live or die. Think of the toy story, the crane game. Who shall mm, live in? Yeah. The but besides the ants, yes. Besides <laughs> the ants. Any news? Anything fun going on? Um, I mean, not really. I have my vaccine scheduled. Okay. I get nice. my vaccine on the 4th. I'm very excited about that. And my um hairdresser has reopened. Oh, nice. will be reopening. So I'm getting my hair done. So those are my two big excitement things. Mm -hmm. But I don't, it's, been, it's been weird. I've been getting a lot of compliments at work, which you would think would be a really good thing. But it almost feels like I'm being buttered up. To like, mm. I'm like, am I getting, am I going to get fired or like, am I getting some kind of like 
extra responsibility that I'm not going to like. I feel like you're trying to cushion a blow of something that's coming and it's. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you got to take the good when you get it, you know, try not to overthink it. I mean, it is it is really like truly just like such a mark of our times that you can't trust like a compliment on your good work when you know that you've been working hard and you're still just like, hmm, that's suspicious. (laughs) This week, I sort of feel. Well, this is how I've been telling people it like that. I I've sort of settled. I have three sort of freelance jobs that I'm working now. Very exciting. And yeah. And uh, they combined average is less than minimum wage. So fun stuff there. Uh, but, you know, and it's worse than that. This is what I tell you. It's worse than that because it's like it. the freelance jobs is per working hour, right? So it's like you're paid for results, not. So if you take breaks, if you're in meetings or whatever, right? So it's like it's eight hours a day of actual work gets you eight hours of uh, right. money. So it's actually much less than most people's nine to fives where they get away with two or three hours of free time or a paid lunch or whatever it is. But, you know, it's, it, it, I like, I like most of the jobs or all of them actually. So that's cool. And, um, you know, it's just one stepping stone, but I don't think I ever actually officially said on the podcast, but yeah, I dropped out of my PhD, uh, a while ago now. And, uh, that has been obviously quite tough. I'm not feeling too emotional about it right now, so that's fine to sort of... I don't, I don't have anything to say about it in particular, but it's it's tough. It's one of those things where I thought, uh, you know, I had a certain life path ahead, and I just, I had realized years ago that the job market and where my abilities were at and my strengths in it were not going to get me a professorship. It's just that my exact subfield and how everything worked, it just, I'd seen so many people, better better scholars than I, try and just be stuck in these ruts for years and years and years. And as much as I enjoy just living in, you know, the sort of ivory protected ivory palace, I was just, the illusion was so broken that mm-hmm. it just felt such a things. And there's other reasons too. Partly the pandemic just made me very upset. Couldn't hang out with people while doing the work. I mean, same, same with any other work that I'm doing now. So <laughs> it makes no real difference there. But I, I really hope that I can, one of the things is I only met uh, a bunch of my cohort for like uh, two years while I was there. And one of those years was the pandemic. And so I, I really hope that I can stay friends with them and like keep connecting with them because it just feels bad. It was, it did feel like a new thing sort of happening in my life. And I really got along well with a lot of them. So it's a couple things like that I'm trying to work out still. But obviously the main thing is just trying to find a new trajectory and career in life. And it's, uh, it's tough. I, I've, told everyone this, but it's like, it's a thing where you have to be okay. Like after the example I always give is after a bad breakup, no one expects you to get into an amazing, perfect relationship right away after that. Actually, people would be suspicious if that happened. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I feel with the job things. Like in terms of getting a new career or getting a new lease on life in terms of that kind of trajectory, you can't expect it to to happen all all at once. You're on like a road of rediscovery. Right. Like you have to exactly. learn who you are outside of this huge thing that was like so intertwined with your personality for so long. Absolutely. And so uh, I'd still like to, I mean, it's what I spent so much of my years of time. So I still like to entwine it, whether that be in hobbies or in work and somehow. And for, like a, a lot of these freelance jobs, for example, involve writing. And so I really like the that my writing experience is uh, at least involved. And even, you know, even this podcast has a little bit of like 
my ability to do analysis of things has to do with the training. Yeah, I mean, stuff, if you actually so. did research ahead of time, okay, it would okay, be a little it. more comparable. Yeah. I mean, I don't do research ahead of time, but at least I'm honest about about oh what I'm gonna God. do. Well, say, and I and I have a terrible memory for actors and stuff, unfortunately. So, yeah. uh, like, especially, I think one of the things you're good at is, even if I have the actor written down, I don't have off the cuff. This is what they were in, like what you would know relevant. Like, yeah, I just don't, I don't have know why I have that. It's not useful, but it is useful for you know people looking to get get interested in these. Uh, yeah, in that's the stuff true. I mean, it's about. useful in this context. It's useful for the yeah. podcast, and because I have the podcast, I can put it to use. But before I had the podcast, what was this memory recall for? Because I I couldn't. <laughs> it just apply means you're interested in else. it. I know, but I couldn't apply it to anything else. I have this amazing memory bank. For like movies and TV and actors and music and all of that shit. But I can't figure out how to apply that memory recall to things like science or math mm. or just anything else. And I'm like, you, mu- you must have heard of this, this line on a lot of TikToks and stuff where a lot of people are using this line now. Like, I no longer dream of labor. Okay. You heard this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, they're so. like, you know, what's your dream job? And now uh, this is like the, the, this line that people are, are pushing against in terms of all uh, the labor shortage, at least in the US, maybe in Canada too, where a lot of people don't want to be working these minimum wage uh, jobs anymore. And uh, the pandemic is awakening people, making people reconsider work in general. But it reminds me of what you're saying, like with this, this idea of a useful skill or why do I have this? Or like, what can I make use of this? And it's like, we always are trying, and I, I'm absolutely the same way. We're always trying to take anything in our lives and it's like, can this be monetizable? Can this be productive when we should have a large portion of things in life we do for ourselves, we do for fun, we do without any looking for judgment for other people. Not that I'm blaming you or anything like this. It's just reminding me how we have these habits. Uh, 100%. I'm one of the worst people for it. I mean, yes, I agree with you. But I think more for me, it's not so much how I can apply this um, or monetize this skill. It's how can I apply this to areas that I naturally struggle in? Yeah, I always struggled in things like mental math or sciences. And I have this perfect memory recall for the entertainment industry and pop culture, but I can't apply it to the areas that I personally struggle in. I don't care if they're monetizable. I would just like to be like able to conveniently figure out what a tip should be in a restaurant without having to pull out (laughs) a calculator on my fucking phone. I know I have a calculator on my phone. It's not that hard to do, but like, it's not as convenient as just being able to do it in my head. Mm -hmm. Speaking of perfect recall, um, have, can we talk about the three amazing new trailers that dropped this week? Absolutely. I'm very excited. uh, Oh, I do. One was ooh, something in Soho, Midnight in Soho. Last Night in Soho Close by enough. Edgar Wright. Edgar yes. Wright did Baby Driver. He also did Shaun of the Dead, Hot I don't Fuzz. Like, I like those two. I do not like Baby Driver. Baby I don't Driver like Baby Driver a, either. It's so indulgent. It has Kevin Spacey in it. and It's, I mean, I understand what he was trying to do, but Baby Driver just feels like, the less intelligent, more mass marketable version of Drive, which is mm-hmm. very much the same movie, but with like way less to say. Yeah. You know, amazing soundtrack. I will say amazing soundtrack. But yes. 
these are the types of movies that Edgar Wright is known for. It looked good, though. The trailer looked amazing. Yeah, Last Night in Soho has Anya Taylor-Joy, who's becoming such a modern-day scream queen. I'm very excited mm-hmm. about it. Um, probably best known for The Witch, but she also did uh, New Mutants. I mean, she's been she did Emma. She's been in so much recently. Yeah, well, I mean, I loved the she was in uh, the chess one, uh, Queen's Gambit. Yes, loved Queen's her in Gambit. It. Amazing. Oh, so good, so good. And she's just got like such amazing features. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, it's got it's got her. It's got Jesse May Lee, who we know from recently watching um, Shadow and Bone. She's the lead right. in Shadow and Bone. Which, mm. yeah. And uh, I mean, I don't know if that's so much her fault as the character was yeah. just boring. She was the most boring character in the entire show. And also has Matt Smith, 11th Doctor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Funny. But it just, it has such a cool vibe. The trailer had such an interesting feel to it. It gave very much like, I don't know, Suspiria meets, mm-hmm. what was the other one I said? Say things to you that are so interesting and you don't remember them. Um, <laughs> but it's it's just sort of like a very neo-noir feel, but it's it's parallel universes and horror and yeah. like, I don't know. It was just a teaser, so it doesn't give you like a real strong understanding of what's going on, but it's very interesting. Yeah. What were the other two uh, trailers? Neon Demon. Ah. Suspiria uh, meets yeah. Neon Demon. Um, second trailer that dropped. This one looks really interesting to me, but I'm a little like, I'm reserving judgment until it comes out and I can see it. Uh, old coming Mm -hmm. from M night Shyamalan. Yeah. I, I thought it looked good. I agree with you. I agree with you. I think it looks really cool, but I think M night Shyamalan is really good at cutting fucking trailers. Like his, his movies consistently look really cool. When the trailer comes out, and so often, they just don't work. And I I appreciate him so much as a director because I do think he tries to do new things. I do think he tries to be provocative and, and advance his medium. I just don't think he's consistent. Part of me thinks he's trying to revive what he did with The Sixth Sense, which is very much what happened. He gave away that twist. 10 minutes into the movie, but nobody caught it. And that's what made it so effective. That like third act dawning of realization. And he's never been able to do that again. Right. I'm not even saying that his, the rest of his movies are trash. You know, I rewatched signs. It's a little campy. It's not perfect. Mm. It's still really, really good. And in that one, the characters are so well developed. The relationships are so grounded and real that it works really effectively even when the movie is kind of corny and sort of a War of the Worlds ripoff. But then you watch things like The Village, and it's like, well, all of the danger and all of the anticipation is wrapped up in these monsters, and we find out 30 minutes into the movie they're not real. And it just it kind of deflated it for me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... <sighs> I'm hoping for a lot from this because the cast is really interesting. I mean, it's got Gail Garcia Bernal, who we love from E2 Mama Tambien and a whole host of other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Alex Wolf, who tremendous in Hereditary. Like he's just been in hit after hit after hit recently. Yeah. I want it to work. I'm just trying to be conservative about it and not get overhyped. <laughs> yeah. 
And then last but not least for trailers, we got the Eternals teaser trailer for Marvel. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, that was very cool. Very yeah. Game of Thronesy, which was weird. Yes. I mean, I know Marvel isn't so much a universe that you're really particularly passionate about. Mm-hmm. I do think it is cool that it's going to be directed by Chloe Zhao, who did uh, Nomadland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's going to create a really new, interesting perspective. She is also the first director to direct a Marvel movie after she's already won an Oscar. So that's kind of neat. Mm. But I wonder. I think, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say conceptually for me, what makes this cool? What makes this potentially like a real deviation for Marvel? I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of things you can talk about for uh, for this. But Marvel movies are notorious for using sound stages. So when they want exotic locales or they want alien looking territories, they're on a soundstage and it's CGI'd in, which makes perfect sense. But in the Eternals, apparently Chloe Zhao wanted to limit this. So they actually went out on location, found really like primitive landscapes, underdeveloped regions, alien looking um, structures. And that's how they achieved similar effects. So it it Mm, gives it more grounding and realism, I think. And that's what you're seeing in that opening shot of the teaser trailer, the, yes, the Nomad really like Land esque feel. Yeah, I do appreciate. I, I appreciate that, that. I think that it, it has a very diverse look at the history of humanity. That's sort of where its starting point is. It's. I love this historical approach. Like it doesn't feel like standard, um, standard Marvel. And actually, I saw the trailer for Loki as well, and that is its own weird, that's sort of going the Thor Ragnarok sort of route mm, of this yeah. very hyper wackiness that like some some bits of Marvel are going. But this one, uh, the Eternals is going more grounded. I do wonder with all these new pieces, uh, with WandaVision, with Falcon and Winter Soldier, like how this is all going to fit into the next stage because it's, it is fresh. There's enough freshness in different directions that it isn't just going to be another, of uh, you know, of origin story, Avengers, origin story, origin See, story, and Avengers. That's what I'm liking here with Eternals, um, unlike with the Avengers, they're introducing an ensemble film similar to how they did with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. So you're getting all right. of the characters in one go. And we don't know what that's going to mean. Is it going to mean solo movies after? Is it going to mean they're going to integrate with the new Avengers when those finally get built up or potentially young Avengers if those get built up, which does mm-hmm. seem to be the direction they're going with um, like the new Hawkeye show and potentially Loki, et cetera. And like the fact that they've introduced Wanda's kids in some way, it definitely feels like they're going the young Avengers scope, but we don't know how that's going to interact with Eternals if it will, because those phases are kind of separated, right? We have phase four and then we'll see what happens in phase five with WandaVision. We already know that that's going to integrate in the new Doctor Strange movie, mm-hmm. The Multiverse of Madness. So WandaVision was a setup for that. Falcon and the Winter Soldier seems to be a setup, like a twofold setup. We're going to see the new Captain America with Sam, but then we still have Bucky's journey for him mm-hmm. to become potentially the White Wolf, which is another character. So, I mean, who knows what direction it's going to go in, but I do think... The Eternals teaser felt very different, a lot more like fresh, uh, more prestige Mm -hmm. almost. And I don't think there's anything wrong 
with the Marvel movies, but I do think their television shows have felt more prestige, more elevated than most of their previous movies. And I kind of like the idea of them continuing that trajectory, giving us more elevated content, more grounded and realistic um, plot points. I think I think there's potential for that to be really interesting. I also think the cast is incredible. Mm-hmm. Like it's just it's it's one of the most A-list casts that we've gotten in a Marvel movie. We've got Rob Stark and Jon Snow in it, mm-hmm. both incredibly famous and well-known for Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. I do know their actual names. It's Richard Madden and Kit Harington. It's just... <laughs> Everyone knows Kit Harrington's name. Nobody remembers Madden, Madden's name. So, Yeah, no, it is exciting. And to go off of that, last week or earlier this week, we watched uh, one of the latest in the DC universe. So that competition is sort of getting off. But we watched uh, the new Wonder Woman. Not new anymore, but, you know, new to us. Uh, yeah. Wonder, Wonder Woman, Woman 1984. Yes, that is it. Wonder Woman 1984. The... Ugh. The DC track is so frustrating because there's there's been elements of potential in it. I think Birds of Prey was really, really interesting. Yeah. But Suicide Squad was fucking atrocious, you know? I mean, yeah. I actually on a second watch kind of like I've kind of liked grown to like some of these movies. Aquaman has been terrible. Superman versus Batman, I found conflicting in energy like it just felt like two separate movies that were mashed together it just didn't totally work stylistically for me uh the only dc movie that i can say i genuinely enjoyed is birds of prey but i actually didn't mind aspects of aquaman didn't mind aspects of suicide squad Suicide squad is a mess as a movie but yes harley quinn is so enjoyable on screen there are moments with other characters i really enjoyed so Going into it, I knew that it already had gotten terrible reviews, so I was kind of prepared, and I felt fine with it. And actually, the new trailer for the new Suicide Squad, it does look cool, and I'm sure it's going to be a good job. But actually, the the super over-the-top style of it, I actually find less to my taste. And that that's purely subjective, but it's yeah. just there's something about it where it's well, like, it's, it's so silly-gory. It's James Gunn, isn't it, doing the new Suicide Squad? And he did Guardians of the Galaxy. So it feels very much like they're going in that direction, which is fine. But the the gore level is ramped up too, which his style with gore, I don't know. There's something about it that doesn't sit right with me. That's the differentiator with with DC, right? Because they're not a Disney property. That's what they can do. They can go dark. They just don't do it effectively. You know what I mean? Like you had um, Deadpool – which similarly is very high octane, very gory, very like ridiculous comedy over the top, but it works. And I mean, Deadpool is definitely a character that you can do that with, but they did it really effectively and it worked really well. DC seems to be trying to do that with these properties with like the, you know, Harley Quinn, Suicide Squad, even, even Wonder Woman 1984. And they're just, they can't seem to find the line properly. They can't seem to make it work. And I mean, I I have heard recently that apparently like the DC ownership contract is coming up and the the current company that owns them, I think it's it's W it's some WB affiliate or conglomerate that owns them is considering selling them. 
a lot of people are like, are they going, is Disney going to purchase DC as well and own both properties? I don't think that that's a great solution here. I do think the movies would probably be better, but I don't love the idea of that level of entertainment monopoly where yeah. like they just own all of the fucking comic books. Like that's, that's not great to me. I didn't mention to actually, and I don't know if you've seen, but I did see Zack Snyder's Justice League as well, which I found, and this is actually how a lot of people reviewed it, and it's such a sad sort of way, but it's like, it's just very acceptable. Like, it it has a coherent, put-together storyline. It has a cool moment at the end that I really enjoyed, and that is leading into the next sort of phase or the next thing of possibilities. Getting the team together actually worked to a certain degree, and now they had four hours to do it, so fair enough. But, like... They actually did spend an adequate amount of time on each character and get them together. But that's what it is. It's a movie about just getting the team together, fighting the bad. That's kind of my issue. I feel like if if you, A, if you can cut and reshoot that much shit, two hours worth of stuff, and still have a relatively coherent movie afterwards, which they did. I'm not saying the Joss Whedon Justice League was good. It wasn't. But it was coherent. It hit all its marks. If you can cut out two hours of content... And it still be a coherent movie. But you have to put in two hours of content for it to be a good movie. You wrote a shitty fucking movie. Mm. You shouldn't require four hours. Tell that to Lord of the Rings fans. Yeah, but those are three separate movies. <laughs> they're but they're three each like five individual hours long. movies. They're five hours long. Fine. They're four hours long for the third one. Three and a half for the second and three for the first. But they're not four hours long telling the exact same story as the two-hour version. Like Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring, when it came out in theaters, was like two hours and ten minutes or two hours and twenty minutes. And the extended cut version was just under three hours. They added in 40 minutes, maybe, of like a couple deleted mm -hmm. scenes that were fan service for people who loved the books. This movie was like, oh, Joss Whedon butchered my film and it's a piece of shit and the fans want the full Snyder Cut version. It's four hours. You added in a two-hour movie to your shitty two-hour movie and that's the only reason it's even competent now. You wrote a shitty movie. You know, if we're going to get here, like all the super movies over, I want them to come out and that I can like it. I liked the Justice League movie. I didn't love it by any means. But I, I'm just glad that they managed to put together something if we're going to yeah. keep getting these movies. I mean, fine. I just don't think... Wait till we get to Wonder Woman. <laughs> I just don't think four hours of mediocrity is acceptable. If the only thing you're getting is a passable, mm. like, six and a half out of ten, you wrote a fucking bad movie. Like, you're not a good director. And look, I can go into a million things about Zack Snyder, <laughs> but I feel like he got his ass kicked for, like by WB or whatever they brought in Joss Whedon Joss Whedon didn't do any better with it so like everyone's like yeah Zack Snyder's the king and we love him and we need his version and when it came out and it was like passable he got praised and it was undeserved yeah, yeah I mean fair enough but coming off of yeah now seeing Wonder Woman 1984 it's like Justice League's better than Wonder Woman, like, yeah, I this will, movie yeah. was Wonder Wo also <laughs> mediocre and competent. Like, there is a storyline that's put together here that makes sense. But, like, every aspect of it is so... My biggest thing is suspension of disbelief has to be thrown 
out the window, into the garbage can. Like, it's unbelievable how little makes feels like it's grounded in any sort of world, anything that makes sense. You know, and especially when your premise in this is a wishing stone, so anything can come true too, just adds to the to the total anything goesness of the whole movie. Well, and I feel like I it's it's especially frustrating because that first Wonder Woman movie was actually really good. It was surprising. Yeah, I didn't love it, but it's very good. good yeah. It, in comparison to everything else DC had brought out at that yeah. point. Wonder Woman was like a shining fucking star. And they managed to do the female-led superhero movie better than Marvel did when they brought out Captain Marvel. I don't think Captain Marvel is a bad movie, but I do think Wonder Woman achieved the same thing better. Yeah. And then Wonder Woman 1984 comes out. They very clearly in the trailer are doing like this homage to Thor Ragnarok. They want that same kind of style. They want it to be like that kind of comic book bubblegum really ostentatious look in the trailer at least and they just did not effectively do it they have it set in 1984 the set pieces and the costuming for everyone but the main characters is so ostentatious it is the most abrasive and aggressive version of what 80s clothing is so it doesn't feel accurate it doesn't feel like a time period piece it feels like what some like 13 year old. It's so like play set pieces. Yeah, it feels like what a 13 year old thinks the 80s looked like. Yeah. Like you walked into high school on decades day and wearing 1980s vomit on your like as an outfit. It's ridiculous looking um, for everyone but the main three, four characters. They seem to be in relatively normal period clothing. It's It's very strange. And the soundtrack... They didn't utilize any of the mm-hmm. amazing 80s music. I mean, say what you will about Guardians or or Thor Ragnarok. I think they're fun. I think they achieved what they wanted to. But they utilized soundtrack so effectively. Yeah. And then you have Wonder Woman set in the 80s. You have the perfect reason to have amazing 80s power ballads during your fight scenes. And they don't do it at all. They have Hans Zimmer directing a... or coordinating a fucking four-string quartet for the whole thing. Like, why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's not it's not it's not fun, but it's also it's serious aspects are not interesting. The emotional depths of things. So one of the emotional core, quote unquote, cores of the show is her bringing back her dead lover through one of these wishes. Chris Pine. With this kind of monkey's paw deal of it. So there's a sort of twist to it and it's just it's not interesting but yeah i didn't love the chris pine stuff i found it really like randomly inserted into the movie and just because it's chris pine he also looked really bad in this i yeah up with that i don't (laughs) know i think he just had a face that kind of was baby face ish for his age and now he's really transitioning and that doesn't look good now he also it looked like they put a lot of fake tanner on him and that oh, like yeah. really sat in his lines. Yeah. So it just like shadowed any kind of Luke Perry forehead thing he had going on, yeah. which I'm very into the Luke Perry forehead. Like, give me all of that. <laughs> just oh, I know. The weird shading on it was not great. I don't know if I, I must have told you, but it's like, I definitely like will see guys with a Luke Perry forehead going on and I'll just <laughs> think like, this is a Lydia. Dude, like I is- I don't know what's up with that. 
I don't know what's up with that. It's like every Raffin has their taste. I you know like but the it's heroin addicted wrinkly forehead, guys. wrinkly forehead. Yeah, but okay, heroin chic has been a thing since like the nineties. Yeah, Luke Perry forehead. I mean, I guess Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero was out in the nineties. So maybe there's more people like me. Oh, for sure. Maybe I'm not the only one who's attracted to a creased and expressive forehead. Yeah, I am looking forward to the Eternals. Wait, that's that's not DC. That's Marvel. Okay, so I was. Yeah, that's. Do you know Marvel. what's coming up for DC then? Uh, um, oh, there's yeah, there's the Suicide Squad one, which we mentioned. Yeah, the James Gunn Suicide Squad movie, and like, I mean, DC's always cranking out animated pictures. They're re- like, that's right. the thing they're really good at. They always do animated movies really, really well. Their Batman anim- animated movies are fucking incredible. Yeah, I, I don't like them. I do agree they're good. I, it's just I'm not a fan of that style and the animation. You're wrong. The the budget on those animations it just doesn't feel movie quality to me. I don't I yeah, I don't disagree with you. It's not like into the Spider-Verse or anything. They're not doing anything like technically exceptional with animation, but I do find the writing, the voice acting, yeah. the soundtracks are always superior in DC's animated pictures compared to their live action films. Yeah. Well, they yeah. just they can't seem to figure out a live action formula, but whoever is in charge of like their animated movies is doing a phenomenal job just from plotting and like comic book accuracy beyond suicide squad. I'm not sure what DC has coming because that Zach's like that Snyder cut right. of justice league came out and everybody loved it so much more that a lot of people are speculating. They might return to like Snyder's original vision for mm-hmm. that phase of movies. Yeah. And, and speaking of like, you know, these just things just, being put on for way too long and just like franchise. It's not even a franchise, but I almost think of it as a franchise. But I, on not necessarily on your recommendation because it was big on Netflix and stuff too, but I ended up watching Dome in the Window as well. And that was not a recommendation. I told you it wasn't good. No, I know. Yeah, but like based on you having watched it and I was like, it's still interesting to me. And Amy Adams. I always love Amy Adams. Mm, I do love her. But like, just no. That movie was just a thriller Is that gone WB? Wrong. I I don't know. But okay. Um I look, Netflix Netflix is frustrating to me because like I mean, it's a streaming service. I don't give a shit if they like do well in making original content, but they're like they're just not grasping it super well, you know? Like it's the only way they're going to stay ahead of these like mm-hmm. monopolies that are creating their own streaming services. And they just can't nail down the formula. You know, every now and again, they get something great. Like they did those Marvel TV shows and they actually did a better job than Marvel did with their original set of television shows. And they they did a better job than the two Marvel shows that they brought out on Disney Plus, which I love. I think they're great. I thought WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier were awesome. But I do think Disney is struggling with the television format. They they don't have that formula mm-hmm. down. They're making extra long movies and then just cutting them into pieces and calling it a TV show. Yeah. But the pacing is super fucking weird in them. Like WandaVision, the first three episodes were cool and campy and kitschy because it's like, oh, we're, you know, hearkening back to old school sitcoms and that's cool but they had no plot movement no real 
genuine character development in them. They they were kind of meaningless in the scope of like that story. Mm. And you had the same thing in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. You had an like an episode where it was 50 minutes long and it was just exposition. Mm. Nothing really happened. There were no fight scenes. There was no like huge revelations, nothing that should happen in the pacing of a television, like an action television show like that occurred. Mm. Netflix, when they did their Marvel shows, Jessica Jones, uh, Iron Fist, notwithstanding, that was terrible. Yeah. But Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Daredevil, yeah. and The Punisher were all phenomenally well-crafted TV shows. They were really mm-hmm. good. Netflix has a really good um, team set up for their Original content. Yes. Yeah. A season, their seasonal formula is very strong. But then they they purchase these properties or they make deals with these actors. And it's it's like they give up all creative control or something. Mm. And then it just doesn't come out right. You know, like even even I'm thinking of ending things, which I enjoyed. Yeah. I also read the book and it just it didn't quite work. It was better than Woman in the Window, but it, it still it still didn't feel right. There's there's always think, sort of yeah. like a cheapness and an awkwardness to the full there's length. A, there's a sort of non cinematic quality to a lot of Netflix movies. There's something about they know that it's not going to be in a theater, so there's something about yeah. it that doesn't quite work. But I actually thought I think if anything is still a really excellent movie. So like that one's that one's fine. But the average Netflix movie or like most of what's comes out really has this problem but i actually think it's more like this formulaicness or this like standardness that they that they have that i remember um the the trial of the chicago seven for example very much gave me that vibe even though again good movie but like it just had i blame aaron sorkin on that more than netflix and again that's what i'm talking about they make deals Mm. with like these directors or they buy these properties or they make deals with actors and they give up all of their own creative control and i'm not Mm. saying i think a studio should have like a huge bulk of creative control but i do think that's why disney is more successful that's why like their direct-to-streaming properties are doing better. They have a larger brand. They have more money. But they have a set functioning formula that is popular that works effectively. Netflix hasn't figured out what's going to work and what isn't. So they're just making expensive deals with high-end directors or actors and giving them limitless control on whatever they want to create. And I, I love the concept of that. I just don't think that it's successful. You know, like the trial of the Chicago 7 was like, perfectly on brand Sorkin you know it had nothing in it that was new or innovative in my opinion it was just exactly what Aaron Sorkin always does and they purchased it they decided to do it because it's fucking Aaron Sorkin and they thought they'd win an award from it yeah I I I'd honestly I'd rather Netflix go this route I don't know why they haven't had too many breakout movies I, I I but I don't think it's because they're allowing creative control I think that is the right move is to give because I actually don't like how Disney is has such authoritative control over so many properties because there is a sameness yeah. to everything. Look, and I would agree with you if they were purchasing properties or making deals with directors that had any interest in being innovative. They're not. Mm. They're making deals with the highly popular actors or the directors that are most likely to win awards and giving them limitless control. And those directors are just doing the same thing they've always done or they're getting shit like fucking Hubie Halloween from Adam Sandler. And it's like, well, 
what are you paying for then at that point? Like if you're not going to direct them in a certain way, if you're not going to provide any kind of concept around what you're doing and you're just giving them limitless control, but you're doing it with these old world Hollywood guys that have no interest in being innovative anymore, you're not getting to anything out of this deal. But going back to Woman in the Window, yeah, it's it, that one just feels very much like it's the copy of a copy of Gone Girl to Girl on the Train to it. And it's mm-hmm. it, it's not even that it's formulaic. It's just these these thrillers with memory problems or like internal, I don't know, issues or, or something like this. And it just... Woman trauma. It didn't go anywhere <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know. It didn't go anywhere interesting for me. It wasn't quite, you know, it's obviously, as you were saying in yours, rear window-esque, but it didn't go... I don't know. It didn't get into the, that type of psychology that well. I don't know exactly what it is that went wrong, but it just doesn't feel meaty. It felt like it was trying to be like really esoteric and meaningful the way that I'm thinking of ending things I think was more effective in even in the cinematic mm. format. I do think I'm thinking of ending things was a better book than it was a movie, but I I think that's kind of the direction. Yeah, her they connection it to with go. the past and stuff. Yeah, I can see that for. Yeah. Um, and, and just the non-linear scope of it meshed in with yeah. this neo-noir Hitchcock thing. And first of all, I just, I, I'm not saying you can't put those two things together. I just, I think it's a very difficult line to walk because there's something very like specific and classic about yes. a Hitchcock noir. There's like a really specific feeling to that. And when you add in like psychological trauma creating like, an untrustworthy narrator in a nonlinear timeline. It's it's you can't you can't effectively make those two things work. They combat against each other too much. Um. Yeah. It's just yeah. The the bizarreness of how the uh, how the characters would act like the other characters besides her when in the room and stuff. Yeah. I just didn't understand the purpose of them acting so fourth wall breaking or abstract all the time. I understand because her mind is you know kind of in different places at once, but it just. I do. I mean, I, I still don't think the book was that good, but Mm. I do think the book put a lot more emphasis on explaining the fragility of her state of mind because it, it puts a lot of effort into describing how heavily she's drinking um, how she's double dosing on her medications or taking the wrong medications constantly, mixing up because she's drunk, pl- like combining that with her agoraphobia um, and her paranoia. You're, you see a lot more of like the ear markers of her instability. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it makes you come to the conclusion that she's not a trustworthy narrator yeah. because everything is written from her perspective, right? But she presents very well to other people in the beginning and and like through to about midway in the second act of the book. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get both perspectives. You you understand why people are giving her a lot of latitude yep. because she's going through some kind of trauma. She's alone in this house. She's obviously agoraphobic, but she's still a doctor. She's still authoritative. She presents very well in front of company. Um, and then it deteriorates. So I do think there are a lot more 
slow burn with it. They describe it a lot more. They yeah. give you a lot more time with her to understand. Whereas I think this did suffer from being only an hour and 30 right. minutes and they took out a lot of that character development. I still don't think the book is great, mm-hmm. but I do think it it handled that a lot better. Yeah, I, I think if you are looking for a fun, like if you're looking for a fun thriller, I think Girl on the Train in the movie is really fun. So great. Obviously Gone Girl. Like, so those are the ones I go for. And if you're looking for more of the weirdness or the abstract or the surrealness. I still wouldn't it, pick this. I'd pick like coherence or the invitation. Yeah. Or um, I'm thinking of ending things for really that far. Not a thriller at all, mm. but has a thing. And well, uh, a little bit. Or even even like Horse Girl to get that surreal journey uh, into, you know, the trauma in the past and but it just, it's too much between a bunch of things that I think could have worked, but just really didn't. Yeah, I think, I just felt like it cut a lot of corners, you know? I mean, I think you probably could make that neo-noir Hitchcock psychological thriller thing work and fit together, yeah. but you need to expand on that a lot more and you need to spend a lot more time carefully crafting those characters. Yes. And this movie just didn't do that. Yeah. And I think pretty much all the characters and the acting except for Amy Adams was boring. Like there was there was no care in crafting these characters. You do get that a little bit more in the book. You get to spend mm. a little more time with them. Um but but even then it it feels very glazed over. This feels like a book and a movie that should be a character study through the lens of an untrustworthy narrator, but you don't, you don't get any of that character study. Yep. So it ends up feeling like very, I, I don't know, selfish, weirdly. Mm. Yeah, that's the one I, uh, w- or one of the ones I watched recently. It's going to be like two episodes on us dissecting. <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, cut it down a bit, maybe. <laughs> well, I recently watched Zack Snyder's follow-up to his justice four-hour fucking Justice League cut, Army of the Dead. Right. How was that? And I am here to tell you, and I might take shit for this, that movie fucking sucked. <laughs> it was so fucking bad. It was terrible. For, I cannot believe people. There's so many reviews online and like Twitter feuds going on online about people saying how fucking great this movie was. This movie was atrociously bad. Shockingly terrible. First of all, it is a heist movie masked in a zombie movie Mm -hmm. and i could get behind that i watched train to busan peninsula which is the same plot almost identical Mm -hmm. also not great but um, but i can get behind the concept of a zombie heist movie that's fun it is two and a half fucking hours long Mm -hmm. so unbelievably unearned the length of this film there is a surprising amount of exposition with like very little plot movement right. and the most boring character development. It's a it's a fucking zombie movie. Like know your audience, dude. We're looking for Fast and the Furious shit. I don't want to go deep on this. <laughs> Almost all of the characters were insufferable. I've come to realize Dave Batista is an even worse actor than I initially thought. He plays Drax the Destroyer in Guardians mm-hmm. of the Galaxy. I think he's fun in that role. He doesn't really do a lot of acting in that role. He has very minimal lines. And the lines he has are like very dry and sarcastic and they end up being quite funny. He is the main protagonist in the movie. So he has quite a few lines. Mm -hmm. 
and he is bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, this th- I do think this movie did suffer a little bit because they had originally cast uh, Chris Delia or Chris Delia or whatever his name is. Oh, okay. um, yeah, he's funny. in one of the roles, ish. Um, <laughs> but when all the controversy around him yes. came out with the underage girl thing, yeah, they decided to reshoot all of his scenes. But instead of reshooting them, they just digitally added in Tig Notaro, another comedian. And I love Tig Notaro. Mm-hmm. I think she actually is quite funny. Um, but like they spent like something like a god awful amount of like right. $150, yeah. $150 million or something to digitally add in Tig Notaro. And all of her scenes looked like she had like this like fuzzy film around right. her outline. So that was awkward. They shoehorned in this plot line that like there are certain zombies that they call alphas that are like super smart mm-hmm. and communicate with each other through screeching. And they have like little communities and stuff and hierarchies and there's a king. But then there's regular zombies as well on top of that. <laughs> Plus there's still the heist that's going on this mm-hmm. whole time. And then there's one dude trying to steal the essence of the smart super intelligent zombies mm-hmm. it's the whole thing's a fucking mess there's so many characters in it and you don't know any of them like i i don't remember a single person's names Yikes. or their motivation for why they were involved in this heist but for some reason there's like five separate times where they have to go save one of the women characters because that comes up m- multiple times mm. I mean, watch it, I guess, if you like zombie movies. But I will say, ultimately, like, if you were hoping for Zack Snyder to get back to his, like, Dawn of the Dead remake zombie roots, it's it's not going to happen. Just rewatch his Dawn of the Dead remake because it is far superior. It had, a, like, it's corny and campy, but it really leans into it. Whereas Army of the Dead, I feel like, tries to be corny and campy, but wants to take itself seriously. And it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Like, mm. lean into the fact that you have a fucking zombie tiger in downtown Las Vegas. That's cool and stupid. Lean into that dumb shit. Don't try and give me stories about zombie hierarchies and, like, I need to save my daughter because I'm a good father and I have to redeem myself for, like, letting her mother die. I don't give a shit. Show me cool heist <laughs> movies, gross zombies, and that fucking tiger. That's dope. Like, ah. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, I I do have some couple other things I could talk about, but I was thinking like since we do have a bunch of stuff to say about Nolan movies, if we wanted to move into that. Soon. Yeah, I mean I don't think I don't think I have anything other anything super major. Yeah, let's casually transition into this movie that we watched. But yeah, so Christopher Nolan, what movie did we watch? Christopher Robert Nolan. Robert. Oh, God, I did not know that. I don't actually know if that's his middle name. I just just chose a random middle name that sounded like super white and bougie. Oh, yeah. Sounded like a rich white person's name. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so we watched Tenet. I almost said the prestige. I watched that. We watched Tenet. Tenet. Where they fight the landlords. (laughs) That would have been a more interesting movie. (laughs) You, it didn't seem like you hated it, but you're just like, come on for this movie, like the whole time. You're just like, yeah, bullshit. a lot of it. It felt like two and a half hours of Christopher Nolan yeah. massaging his own dick. Yes, yeah. For our pleasure. That's that's what that felt like to me. 
Um, and I know, I know I say that about a lot of yeah. directors. I feel like people are just like going to think I hate movies and I don't, I absolutely love movies. <laughs> Clearly not the biggest Christopher Nolan fan. Yeah, these these pretentious like the Tarantinos and Nolans and whatnot. Oh, fuck. I went through such a Tarantino phase. I mean, I feel like everyone who loves movies at least once goes through a Tarantino mm-hmm. phase. I feel like everyone who does go through a massive Tarantino phase should limit that to like their sixteen year old self and not pursue that heavily into their thirties because that's a red flag. <laughs> and maybe yeah. Christopher Nolan's the same for me. I don't know, but these pretentious white men aren't doing it for me anymore. Yeah. I saw a thing where someone was describing their um, going to first year film studies class and they're like, the teacher's like, so um, let's go around the na- uh, classroom and get everyone's name and favorite movie. And it's like... Did they send that to you? Oh, is that what you sent to me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I sent okay, that to you like today. One, that, that one, it killed me. I was like, uh, fucking Todd. The names killed me. Like, Todd, yeah. what's your favorite movie? Uh, Pul- I think Pulp Fiction by uh, yeah. Tarantino. Uh, I'm uh, Chad, Shane and Hunter. I'm going to have to agree with you two guys uh, that I think it's Pulp Fiction, but that's a really hard question. Yeah, like, what about Wolf on <laughs> Wall Street, you know? Oh, my God. Fight Club. Excuse me. No. <laughs> no, Look, it's true. You can, like, there are aspects of Fight Club that I think are worthy of, like, no, no, examination. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we enjoying. don't have to get into it. We've talked about Fight Club so much. <laughs> we do talk about Fight Club a lot. Um. So, yes, we have a lot of... Christopher Nolan hate to get through. So let's yes. get onto that masturbatory train. I will, I do okay. want to say my first thing, like my sort of thesis here is like throughout the movie, I was like hoping he was self-consciously doing this like hyper generic Nolan movie vibe. And by the end, I am not convinced. There are some parts yeah, like, where I'm just like the fuck, the red team, blue team stuff by the end. I'm like, you're literally giving up on any semblance of like characters mattering as characters. It's literally just a video game at this point. I also just love the like, we're doing the temporal pincer move. What the fuck oh is that? You di- you're dying. You're dying over the temporal pincer. <laughs> like, oh, it's like, and by the end, it's like, I'm my own father. Like, that's basically how it felt. Yeah. You know, like, Jesus Fucking Christ, I couldn't deal with it. The grandfather paradox bullshit. Like it just it just felt like some 15-year-old AV club sci-fi nerds wet dream movie. Yeah. But like I'm gonna be taken super seriously. Everyone's gonna stroke my ego because of how like fucking pretentiously gorgeous it is. Everyone's gonna be wearing beige. Mm. There's gonna be 75 outfit changes. Conversations are gonna switch location. I do like the outfit changes and setting changes. Mid sentence. Yeah. Like fuck off, man. <laughs> See that, but that's the self-consciousness thing. Like the setting changes mid com like literally there'd be two characters talking and they'd be walking and talking and literally mid-sentence, as you said, it'll be they'll be in Italy now and now in Berlin. And now and it's just like <laughs> Yeah. I'm like, are they just like pausing mid-sentence and being like, hold on. And that's not that's not time bullshit either. Like that's not like the time inversion bullshit. Like it's let's finish this conversation after we get on our first class seats and fly over to like fucking Berlin. Then we're gonna finish this conversation. We'll pick right back up. It's so dumb. It's so fucking irritating looking. Yeah. So I don't know. I feel like if he had shown the cards that he was self-aware like doing film tropes doing spy tropes doing sci-fi tropes and sort of reversing them or showing how they play out like one of the things 
which had to be done because the premise of Tenet is that things can go backwards in time. So if, for example, you were going backwards in time, you would be seeing things backwards, right? So you see this in heist movies and thriller movies all the time where you go back to a point in the movie where you see how they had, you know, in Ocean's Eleven or whatever, how they had done the whole plan. And so you see it again, right? So Tenet had to, of course, show that type of thing happening. So you saw parts of the movie where there were things that were kind of, where the heck did this car come from? Where the heck did this character come from? They're totally things. But the movie keeps most characters sort of anonymous and weird. So it didn't feel that weird in the context of the movie. But then they explain it. And even the explanation, though, you're just like, it's not that cool. It's not that revelatory. You're just like, no. yeah, it's time bullshit. Like, we knew that was going to be the case. Yeah. And like, when he doesn't spend any time on his characters, and I will say, like, Nolan does this all the fucking time in his movies. Right. His movies are plot driven. They're real. Like, he just doesn't put a lot of care or effort into his characters. Not all the time, mm-hmm. but the majority of the time. Yep. And that's fine if your plot is really fucking relevatory or like pushes the boundaries, but this doesn't. It felt like a shittier version of Looper, which is right. already a shitty fucking movie. Yeah. Like it just, it wasn't as cool as he thought it was. And it felt very much like, I'm going to be like really cool and really pretentious and really slick. Like it, it just felt like it was all ego. And I mean, I do feel that way about a lot of Christopher Nolan movies. So maybe that's just me. Maybe that's my bias. It really does feel like it's just two and a half hours of Christopher Nolan smelling his own farts. Yeah, I think the two best Nolan films for me are The Dark Knight and Inception. And I actually enjoy both those movies quite a lot. But even those are so clearly flawed to me. And a lot of my favorite movies, I would say, have like a lot of flaws. But they, st- what I mean is they don't seem transcendent to me. Like they don't seem like amazing. They, they're still so unwrapped in just Hollywood bullshit type excitement. Yeah. That except for the fact that, of course, Heath Ledger <laughs> as the Joker is, you know, one of the best acting jobs of the 21st century i feel like christopher nolan is like the pretentious man's michael bay okay you know it's all the budget and slickness of a michael bay movie but he gets to be like the intellectual version he's the version that people are like oh he's he's a real film director and michael bay just makes shitty transformer movies but they're doing the same shit like, they don't care about their characters. Mm. Their plots really aren't that relevatory. They are very slick. They are very cinematic looking. They cost a lot of money. Yeah. Although, yeah, it's hard. Actually, because the more I think about it, the more it's like most movies I at least enjoy to a decent degree. Like, I enjoy Memento. I enjoy The Prestige. I enjoy Interstellar. I don't even, at so. this point, I feel like it's hard for me to even include Memento because, yes, it's a Christopher Nolan mm-hmm. movie. It's a Christopher Nolan movie from like two and a half decades ago, and it was the first film he ever made. So I feel like there's a lot. It's even though it is, you know, very wacky kind of the way his movies are, it does feel more grounded. It did mm-hmm. feel like he put a lot more effort into his characters. It felt like a real passion project. And now his movies don't have that kind of heart to them anymore to me. They feel yeah. very cold. Mm. I, yeah, Sim- it's a similar for Insomnia, the one I watched, uh, rewatched recently for this. Insomnia, one of the things I'll say about though is that the characters really do matter. It, or I'm not even sure, but it's like the characters are very interesting. And Al Pacino, I think, does actually a pretty good job 
as the main character. Hilary Swank is really fun in it, and I really enjoy her character's journey in it. And the rest of the supporting cast is also really solid. So Robin Williams is good in it. That one, even more so than Memento, feels the least Nolan of all Nolan movies. I agree with it that. It just, except for this, the the premise that the fact that the main character played by Al Pacino is going through sleepless nights and the insomnia is making him have psychological things. But that almost feels more Lynchian or more some other. It's not the same kind of. It gives vague machinist vibes. Yeah. I don't know who directed The Machinist, but I can't remember. But it's it's just, you know similar conceptually. It yeah. doesn't go as graphic and far as The Machinist does with like the symptoms of insomnia, but similar vibe. Mm-hmm. I feel like for me, like because I rewatched The Prestige, and I remember thinking that was such a cool fucking movie. Yeah. And like, look, I love magic. Magic is cool, so it still kind of works for me. Um, but I think. The Prestige A feels like a turning point to me for Nolan where he starts getting more egotistical in his work. He starts getting colder in his work and it feels like there's less passion driving him. But also, I I think The Prestige really benefited from the fact that there was another movie with such a similar concept that came out that same year that was worse. Like it was shittier. Mm -hmm. And I think that elevated The Prestige beyond what it was. Because really, the prestige is just the Count of Monte Cristo. Like mm. it's it's really not in- innovative. It's just the Count of Monte Cristo with magic. That's basically the whole story is just obsession and revenge, and it follows the same kind of plot and tropes that the Count of Monte Cristo does. So mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that's cool, but it's not that exciting unless you're really into magic or you really love Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. Yeah, I. I feel like it's a movie that on rewatch, you'd find it a lot shallower, but it's just a lot of Nolan's too. It's not, not even, he doesn't do twists per se, but he has so much interesting revelations, like of how the mechanics of his, the stuff he's doing in Inception, you know, the levels of dream sequence or what, you know, getting to the level of, um, what was it, the unconscious or whatever, and how mm-hmm. those moments really add to it. But on a rewatch, I just feel like, there isn't that much more depth besides just learning more about the concept. That's what I mean about the lack of care he has yeah. for his characters. They are shallow. They're very two-dimensional characters. Um, and even even Inception suffers from that. The only character we really kind of get to know mm-hmm. is Leonardo DiCaprio's character. And all we yep. know about his motivations are the fact that he used to do this with his wife. She's gone. And maybe he's lost his children. And then in the end, you don't know if any of that is fixed. And I do like the ambiguity of that. But I think the ambiguity of it would be significantly more effective if we had actually come to know this character on a deeper level. Mm-hmm. And that never happens. Your main antagonist, the one that they're like pulling the con against, is Killian Murphy. I have no fucking idea. I have no memory of his character whatsoever. Yeah. It's just, it's it's hard to root for these amazing actors that do put in good performances. Killian Murphy was great. Leonardo DiCaprio was great. Elliot Page, God love him. Mm -hmm. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. They all did a wonderful job in it, but I didn't give a shit about any of these fucking characters. Mm -hmm. I feel like a movie with such a rich ensemble cast, but their characters are so flat and boring, there is no rewatchability to that. You're watching it initially for the slickness, for the coolness, for the potential twists. Once you have all that figured out, 
there is no reason to rewatch this. And yeah. that's that's what bothers me. Whereas I feel like Memento does still have at least some rewatchability because there was a lot of effort put into that main, at least that main protagonist. There's more in Insomnia too. Insomnia's heart to me feels to do with like a sort of moral question about the characters, about making a choice. Essentially, Al Pacino's character has that he's probably planted some evidence or done some things in order to get real criminals convicted. But he's, and he's a famous cop who's gotten lots of criminals convicted. But he's under scrutiny now. And his partner is thinking of cutting a deal in order to, well, not just thinking, he said he's going to cut a deal about this stuff. And Al Pacino says, no, I like you can't do that to me. And while they're hunting a serial killer in Alaska, which they've sort of been banished to <laughs> for the time being, and they find the, this is sort of, sort of spoils the the mid twist of the movie but so if you don't want to get the spoiled but the sort of initial twist you don't want to get movie. spoiled on this like yes, second yes, yes. ever made Christopher Nolan movie from 2001 but some it's a good movie so you know it, it's an interesting this is the most interesting part of the movie probably is then Al Pacino deciding that he while chasing down the murderer he has an opportunity to shoot his partner and stop him from talking. Mm. And that's the big. I totally thing. forgot about this, actually. Well, and that's why he has insomnia and everything. That's his uh, right. uh, thing because he 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 doesn't know at what point what you're doing is helpful. Like, clearly, it's evil for him to have shot an innocent man in order to cover up this stuff. But on the other hand, you can kind of see it from his perspective as like, if every criminal he put away, every would now have to be retried and. Like now, because the evidence is so old and when I'm probably a lot of them set free, there is a thing there. They don't spend enough time on that, like on how bad these people are, or who they are to really make you feel that other side enough. So you're pretty clearly on the side of he's doing something awful. Mm, yeah. But Hillary Swank's character is interesting because she's sort of figuring things out on the outside and she looks up to him as a hero of of the people and and really believes in, in doing, in putting people away. Justice. And so... She goes through a difficult uh, decision-making process here. And actually, I want to highlight, too. Oh, I, I wish I, I wrote down the actress's name. But the innkeeper in it that they meet and, and Al Pacino stays at a sort of little lodge there. She has an amazing role, too, where she sort of is like, everyone comes to Alaska either because they already live here and are staying away from the city or escaped something. And she's like, I wasn't born mm -hmm. here. So like, I kind of know what you're going through being banished to Alaska. Right. And I, I, it's just, it's interesting when a, when a movie subtly shows you characters you believe and you care about their psychological journey, that works. And that's honestly rare in Nolan. Nolan's characters tend to be yeah. just shallow. He almost just picks like roles for them. He's like, this is the architect. This is the sleep inducer. This is the whatever. And Tenet, <laughs> it's like literally yes. they're just named shit like that. Protagonist. Yeah. So you got the, at least at least international we espionage <laughs> spy, you know, it's like, OK, arms like, dealer. I don't know. It's so weird. He gets these amazing actors. He gets really, yeah. really fucking good actors in all of his movies and he underutilizes them so spectacularly. I mean, like the acting in The Prestige. It is really excellent. It's really good acting. You have, you know, um, Michael Caine, Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman. You got a young Scar Joe in the mix. It's solid. Mm -hmm. But the whole thing, the crux of the whole thing is obsession and it's enwrapped in illusion, science, 
and then sometimes hinted at like, hey, maybe magic is real. Mm-hmm. Like maybe he's a real magician. Yep. But like they don't delve into any of it enough. So it's like you have these two amazing magicians that are obsessed with each other and obsessed with competing and outsmarting each other. Cool. I'm here for this mm-hmm. concept. But then it just keeps going. We've got to go deeper. You know, like Inception, it just mm-hmm. keeps going deeper with the premise. And all of a sudden it's like, well, the one guy might be a real magician somehow. He's just he's just magic. And we're not going to address that at all other than hint at it kind of knowingly. And then Tesla's in the mix. Mm-hmm. And now we have science magic. And teleportation is real because Tesla electricity invented it, but it comes with weird consequences and your whole life's going to go to shit because of it. And then we have the dual obsession between Tesla and Edison in the mix. And I know that that's supposed to be like a foil for our two main characters. Mm -hmm. And it is like it, it does work, but they mostly just make Tesla look like an insane mad scientist and Edison isn't in the movie, but his lackeys are there all the time being like obsessive weirdos trying to steal shit. It's underutilized again, where it's like you could have pushed this further and like forced these characters to hold up a mirror to this obvious like foil of themselves with this like really violent rivalry going on between Tesla and Edison. But they just like Nolan just never pushes it to that next level because he doesn't fucking care about the characters. Mm. And that's what's aggravating. Like you put in these plot devices that are so clearly focused on the character's journey, but then you don't give your characters any depth. So the plot devices are ineffective. Yeah. And I mean, Tenet is the absolute worst example of this, where it's all flash, all setting, all spectacle. Yeah. And yes, the concept of inverted stuff is, and I was saying this right at the beginning, I do think it. I haven't seen this exact version of time manipulation done before. So how it works in Tenet is they show the example of a bullet. It's the bullet is literally going backwards through time. And so in a way, if you want to interact with the bullet, you have to intuit, and this is almost, you know, but like where its paths are and where it's doing. But the, the movie kind of implies that history is determined. So even the backwards trajectory of these things, it's 100% determined. So once you discover something is a certain way, it will be that way. No one ever changes the past in it. They just discover why these things were doing these things because of inversions. Uh, Why like a car was where it was or a person was where they were or a bullet like pulls through a piece of glass or whatever. I mean, that doesn't stop them from constantly trying, even though they're constantly saying it can't be done. Which is irritating, but fine, whatever. That's a commonality in time travel movies. Yeah, he does do a nice Nolan-esque ending thing bit, though, where with this determinism thing, where there's a thing that they don't want to happen, happen. And they're like, so we know that this has to happen, right? So we have to invert this thing uh, in order to make that happen. That's the only way it makes sense. We have to do our temporal pincer movement. Yeah, 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 yeah. But... So they're like, so we have to do this inversion and and they don't want to, but they know that that's how it works. And it's it's interesting. I don't know. I, I, I love, as you know, inevitable despair. So that worked for me. But yeah, I really feel like the movie could have been saved for me if it sh- Nolan sh- showed more self-recognition that he was doing like characters of bullshit, funny parodies or whatever 
like a satire of all his if own it tropes. Felt, yeah, if it felt satirical or ironic in any way, I might have been able to get more on board. Or if he just put more effort into his characters, yeah. like one or the other. I could exactly. have taken serious, annoying bullshit Nolan if he put more effort into these characters and like made me give a shit about the world ending. Yeah. Or if he was just ironic about it, you know, like if it was just like a dark comedy. Also one of my least favorite uh, Robert Pattinson roles I've seen recently. Now he's done really, really excellent stuff. So it's it's not saying that he did poorly here, but I just, I didn't like his accent. I didn't like, his character didn't make sense. And there's, this is unfair. One of the me. characters made sense. Yeah, but it's just like, I thought his character should have had a certain twist that the movie seemed to be playing into and would have made sense, but they didn't do it. And I'm just like, so his character is just a guy. Some guy. And it's just like, I don't yeah. know. Like, yeah. Yeah, you wanted you wanted that John Reese like Terminator moment because we kept yeah. referencing Terminator. Yeah. So I just wasn't. and that just didn't happen. Yeah. So I, I I don't get the point of this movie. You know, I just it's cool. Like there's moments that look cool, but even the coolness factor is not that great. And it's so surrounded by yeah. infinity exposition that it's not even that fun of a ride. No, no, there's not enough action for it to be like really cool. The action that is there because it's like half in reverse is weirdly clunky and yes. like not as cool looking as you think it would be yeah. like this inverted shit. When you first see it, it's like, oh, that's kind of neat. And then they like actually show it happening where it's like coming out of the glass and it it looks it looks stupid. Mm -hmm. It looks kind of dumb overall. And that's kind of a bummer because that's the whole reason to see this fucking movie. The one surprise inversion scene that I did like in the middle, when they, when someone first becomes inverted and how breathing works and how like stuff because it all works. Yeah, I thought I mean, that, that was, felt cool and different from the inversions you had seen so far. So that was a cool I moment. I didn't but. totally understand. I still don't get why an inverted bullet going through a non-inverted person is more damaging than a regular bullet No, I know. They just, they just say that that happens. Like, and I, don't, I don't know. And like they have to like invert the person and then revert the person for them to heal correctly. I'm like, none of that. I don't get why any of that is a thing. Like, shouldn't it just operate like a regular bullet? I don't understand. So like I, maybe that's me missing something. I know it has something yeah. to do with radiation. But again, I just feel oh, like yeah. it should operate the same as getting shot with an irradiated bullet would ha would operate. You know, <laughs> there was another thing that I do think was cool on the thing was that there's a point where um, they had a bunch of inverted people in these crates. And so it was the results of a fight they were going to have. And it's cool because they had to not look, not just because there's some t temporal bullshit where if you touch a person who, like if you touch yourself, your inverted self, um, and, and annihilation happens. But it's not even just that. They didn't want to see them because it would influence whether you see yourself injured or dying or dead. Yeah. And so I just thought that was cool because then you yourself as the viewer don't know what's in those boxes, but someone must have put them in the boxes. So you're just like, oh my God, like it's so weird to like know that, but none of it makes any fucking sense anyways, but still there's no. cool moments. No. And like <laughs> the weird thing too is that they're supposed to go like red team and blue team are supposed to go at the same time, mm. but then ha like, Half of the blue team, when they get out of their crates, are going after the red team people have gotten out of their crates. And, like, if one of them gets shot because they're out there first and you're still in the crate on the other time side of it, 
you're going to have the bullet hole too. And then you're still going to interact with the situation differently because you know you get fucking shot. So it's like I, not seeing each other isn't helping anyway. Yeah, it's... Just don't use the same people. There's some weird ones. And one that really didn't work for me is when they had an inverted rocket launcher and a rocket launcher both shoot a building. And then the building like reverse times and unreverses times like three times. And you're just like, I don't know what's happening. It's just a building yeah, collapses and, <laughs> and uncollapses like a bunch of times. Yeah, it didn't. I don't really understand why they did that. Because like the red team gets there and the building is demolished. And the blue team gets there and the building isn't demolished. So the blue team shoots it in the middle and it starts to demolish but on the red team side it starts to rebuild so the red team shoots it at the top and then it blows up on the like I, why yeah, I, why I, does it need to why does so that even weird. need to happen they were like we need a distraction and i'm like you didn't both need to shoot it in two different places with nolan in general like it, it's sad i do i've always looked forward to his movies i was really looking forward to him when i first heard it announced but at this point, especially after Tenet, I just think he's just not interesting as a director to me anymore. He had a bunch that I really enjoyed, and I'll still enjoy them. But he just doesn't have that depth. It's not really rewatchable. I love conceptual stuff, so I'm I'm on board with him in the sense that I love the fact that I got to see cool new conceptual stuff with Inception, with Memento, with Interstellar. But the actual movies are just not that strong yeah and that's that's what i mean it's like the concepts are cool but if you can't build on those and like add depth to it watching two and a half hours of you like spouting conceptual bullshit unironically is just fucking irritating and there's no rewatchability there and like yeah interstellar had some cool concepts and inception had some cool concepts around science and like consciousness and space and dreams and all that bullshit but like there is no rewatchability to those movies and it's not just because they're kind of pretentious and that can get mm. grating it's because there is no warmth to them like mm. they're so purely coldly egotism yeah there is no depth to these characters there's no heart in these movies and it's just fucking aggravating yeah i <sighs> Yeah, warmth and depth. It's like, it's funny because there is so many people out there who do like had the famous stupid line with Inception. Like I watch it once a year to have my mind blown oh. and all that stuff. And like, I do get that. And I, but for me, it's just like, once I see the concept, like maybe one more rewatch to get a little bit more understanding of it. But it's like real rewatching is for that sense of like connection with the characters and, and feel goodness. And his worlds just don't do that very well. Yeah. Coolness factor alone cannot suffice for a two and a half hour movie. Mm -hmm. It just can't. It's not enough anymore. There are so many avenues that you can go down with a movie. And like sci-fi is a cool fucking genre. And bringing in like really conceptual science to a movie is cool. Yeah. But like there needs to be more than just slick coolness. You need to do more than that, you know, yeah. unless you're doing like a purely elevated conceptual bullshit thing like Kubrick's 2001. Mm -hmm. You have to actually have depth to your characters. And I don't think Nolan is intelligent enough or conceptual enough of an artist to create right. a 2001. Yeah. But I think that that is what he wants to yeah, be. That's the closest he gets to. And I think it's a good comparison because I think Kubrick's 2001, it really does. The characters are not that interesting in that 
but no, it has amazing but it elevates moments and expands of, yeah. on so much. Yeah, it, it's so thoughtful about the history of humanity and this this concept of the monolith and how it sped up human evolution, and then it it has surreal moments that are. Sur- truly surreal in an interesting way like nolan could never do surreal because he just doesn't he sees it as bullshit science stuff his stuff never quite makes sense like all of his concepts they don't quite fit together in ways that make sense and he's not very metaphorical or anything it's just really there as a bullshit thing and it's just like i don't know there's something lacking in artistic quality to his and that's that's what i mean by saying he's the pretentious man's michael bay Right. Like there there is no depth to his concepts. It's purely coolness and slickness, but with like pretension behind it rather than Michael Bay explosions. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's fine, I guess. But it's kind of fucking boring. You know, like if all I'm going to see your movie for is to understand whatever conceptual bullshit you've shoved into your science, I only need to watch this once. Mm hmm. And I'm never going to look at it again. And I mean, I guess that's fine, but it's not going to be something that's propelled into the cultural zeitgeist the way 2001 was because he's not thoughtful. He has no depth of character and he's really not expanding on the genre to any like hyper necessary degree because there are other movies coming out doing similar things, but maybe with less money, Mm -hmm. more character development, or it's more esoteric. And that's interesting and artistic for a different reason. And I don't think he can do that. I don't like in Tenet 2 that it does lean more into the spy thriller genre too. Like it's a lot of action set yeah. pieces. It's a lot of bang, bang. Yeah, but it's weirdly boring. Yeah. Interstellar and, and Inception both, they did have action scenes, but they felt more for the sake of the sci-fi rather than this, which felt like a spy thriller first with a sci-fi premise added to it. I would agree with that. And that's the thing. I feel like a spy thriller, like, I don't need to know everyone well, but the reason that Bond works, like James Bond is such an effective spy thriller or Ethan Rain or something in Mm. Mission Impossible, the reason those movies are effective are because you actually like and care about the protagonist. Mm. Like, the reason they're so prevalent in pop culture is because they're irreplaceable. Nolan's characters are cold and dull and boring. So when he does a spy thriller, it's just not effective in the same way because I'm, I want to be really interested in the villain and I want to know who that is. And that's cool. And I want to be like really invested in who my spy is and like follow his journey and watch him do like cool shit with gadgets. Like he's not capable of creating these types of character dynamics. And like, look, fine, he's relegated to the world of pretentious sci-fi and there's nothing wrong with that. But like, at least expand on that genre. Don't try to shoehorn in something that you're just simply not capable of creating. I, I used to really love uh, Nolan and, and his films. And yeah, it's it's same with Fight Club. It's same with a lot of these other things. Um, Tarantino too. Although Tarantino, honestly, my opinion has sort of stayed the same because I never loved, loved him except for maybe Kill Bill. Um, and I always had more of a measured response to him. But there's moments where I really love Nolan and, and especially really love Fight Club. And just as I, as you get older, not as you get older, but as I've gotten older, looking back on these, it's there's something about the quality of cinema that is just not here, but somehow works to mass mod- audiences of a certain pretentious guy sort, especially. Well, it's, it's funny that you named like Tarantino, you named Fight Club, yeah. all of these movies that are like... Film bro guys. Have... 
Well, they're film bro movies, but they're also movies that like have the most like one dimensional flat female characters humanly mm. possible. I'm not sure Tarantino, or Tarantino has like, some cool female characters, but who ultimately by being like under the director's lens are the ones forced to go through the most graphically violent death yeah. and they have to show their feet 75 times. That's not better. That's not a dynamic yeah. Nolan female is terrible character. With women. Has, I can't think of a single yes. interesting Nolan woman. is terrible with women. Uh, well, the closest we got was like, I mean, you had Marion Cotillard in um, Inception and she was in it for like 15 oof, minutes I don't even remember her and was just there to be like an exposition piece for Leonardo Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, she was good. But yeah, but yeah, only, only, there's always a yeah. wife or always a like, just for the sake of exactly. someone else. Um, or a love interest or it's, it's always some kind of plot device for a man yeah. in his movies. And Hilary Swank was good in Insomnia, but also ended up essentially being a, the side character. Yeah. And I mean, look, Tarantino puts a lot of women in his movies. Tarantino also takes a lot of pleasure in sexually exploiting right. and violently murdering his female characters in a way that he would never do to men. Mm. That's gross for the same reasons. Mm -hmm. It's just Lydia shitting on male directors mm -hmm. tonight, apparently. Um, but I mean, I'm not saying there aren't worse movies than Nolan movies. Yeah. Of course, there are worse movies than Nolan movies or movies you might find more boring than Nolan movies. But I think it's just that air of like egotism and pretension mm -hmm. around them also not being particularly innovative or like very interesting or like very well done characters or writing. That's like, it makes it all the more insufferable for me. Yeah. You know, like the writing is just above mediocre. The concept is really great. The characters are flat and it's not super innovative mm -hmm. when it's all said and done. The concept might have the potential to be like really innovative, but when he's not pushing the boundaries or on anything and he's not putting a lot of depth into his story, it never reaches that level. It never feels that carefully constructed. Yeah. Tenet was definitely one of the nails in the coffin. Like, it's just not a good movie. Yeah. And, uh, and like, I, I rewatched and I know we've had conversations about Arrival and like how I found Arrival boring. And I stand by that. I did find it boring on original watch, but I rewatched it recently because I know how much you love it mm. um, and how much you've enjoyed it. So it's like, okay, I need to stop shitting on this, like, Who's it, Villeneuve? Mm -hmm. I need to stop shitting on this Villeneuve movie and just rewatch it again. Maybe I was in a bad mood. It was still a little boring, if I'm <laughs> honest. My God. But I did, I did get a lot more out of it on a second watch. Mm. And I will say, whether or not you're like super interested in a slow burn sci-fi, the characters are really cool. Mm -hmm. They are really interesting. The acting is phenomenal. It is visually stunning. The landscapes are really beautiful. Yeah. And I just, I think it's doing that kind of sci-fi thing a lot more effectively. Yes. I do wonder, like, because even Arrival, which is probably, it's probably better than Annihilation for me and then better than Interstellar. So for that type of movie, probably the best one in five to ten years. And even there, though, it still frustrates me that, like, the end of Arrival, there's so much weirdness with the time stuff and her learning how the time stuff works and the language stuff works that I just feel so unrealistic to me. And I'm just like, I wish sci-fis would like tighten up and just make sure things fit together well by the end. And actually Martian does a yeah, good job fair. of this. I just find Martian too boring. 
from a sci-fi perspective. Oh, like, it's I not, love The Martian. But it, it doesn't do enough futuristic-y stuff. Like, it's basically just how to yeah. how to grow potatoes in space. Like, sure. Which I get. I get why that <laughs> that's boring. Um, I think I liked it more because it it is even though it is conceptual, it's so much more attainable feeling to mm-hmm. me because we are trying to get to Mars actively. We have rovers on Mars. We're not that far away from this situation actually being a reality. So I think I think that's why it it works for me. It feels very near future. Um, and even like the technology that he's using feels well within our current day grasp. So that's kind of cool. And it gives me it still gives me the nostalgia vibes of NASA trying to get to the moon. Mm-hmm. So you get both sides of it. You get this cool nostalgia love for space trying to achieve like the moon landing. But they've expanded on it into a near future we're on Mars now. And that's that's cool. And the characters, particularly Matt Damon, obviously, since we spend the most time with him, but then also Jessica Chastain, Sebastian Stan, Kate Mara, mm-hmm. all of these other people interact really cohesively. Jeff Daniels, Sean Bean, all of these characters interact really cohesively, are really entertaining to watch. They have a lot of like fun energy and heart yeah. it doesn't take itself hyper seriously but it's dealing with a super serious situation mm-hmm. that was really effective for me i mean it's a, it's a good movie as a movie i just find the sci-fi-ness of it like it's conceptually it's about how to grow potatoes on mars like i just don't think it's exciting from a sci-fi standpoint to me. not into botany i just mean like you're shitting on all the botanists presumably now? we can figure out how to potatoes on Mars. Like, I just mean, like, it's just, to me, it's like, it's not, there's no concept well, you're there. They're alone. <laughs> also, Mars is, like, an incredibly accurate and, like, waterless planet. So it would be, in, it would be very difficult yeah, and, to and grow and they explain how to do it on Mars. To me, it's like an engineering problem. To me, it's not philosophically interesting or anything, is, I guess I'm saying. Like, there's no concept here, except, like, I think yeah. what I find, like, philosophically interesting is the fact that he is so far removed from humanity and completely right. cut off. So this is really a choice of like, it's a type of new. I have no contact. Yeah. yeah. I have no contact with humanity. I have no way to get my message out to say, Hey, I'm here. Come back and get me. He has no reason to believe he will ever be come back. Anyone will ever come back for him. So it's a real like philosophical choice of, am I going to fight and survive and try to get help to me? Or am I just going to give up? Mm-hmm. And we watch him go on this like psychological journey with that and fall apart and rebuild himself and give up and keep fighting. And that's cool to me. Yeah, it's just it's a premise that I've seen like 50 times before in different, you know, it's like they're in the water yeah, or they're in an underground base or whatever. And they have no communications. You know? I know, but this felt so much less dramatic, which I kind of like too. Mm. like there was sort of like a mathematicalness about the way he handled the situation. Yes, I did, did find that apart. like the, the long termness of it was interesting that he had to just like yeah. build a whole life for himself. Yeah, I don't know. It just it really worked. The character worked really well for me. And I think that's if I didn't like Matt Damon. I think obviously I would probably dislike this movie significantly more, but because I really genuinely enjoyed his journey so much and his character so much, it just, it was really effective for me. There's actually, the book's very entertaining. There's actually a cool, um, I can't remember the name of it right now, but a very short anime, like six episodes long, uh, uh, sci-fi where they, it's like interstellar, like in that there's time dilation, all this stuff, but essentially this pilot of this ship, um, has to like 
be the last barrier of mankind and like saves them from this is like some kind of alien or some kind of attack or whatever. Um, but to do so, she has to go near a black hole and she knows she'll lose 10,000 years. Like the whole, her whole solar system will go 10,000 years. So she whips around, saves, saves humanity and comes back. And it's so cute because you see her like, you know, sort of barely alive in the um, cockpit and goes to earth and the earth, like, you know how, like when you see from space, you see like uh, lit up city centers and whatnot for that scale. They do like a whole, like, you know, uh, Christmas almost sign or whatever that says like, welcome home. Cause they knew that Aww. she'd be back in. Yeah. Uh, at that time, based on their calculations. And it's just like, Oh my God, like the whole world's power system was built to do that for That's her. Cute. Yeah. And so cute. no, no conceptually interesting thing. I think just emotionally very cool. Uh, use of the whole uh, yeah. time dilation thing. Yeah, and I mean, again, that's, you know, that's the reason The Martian worked for me. It is very much like a single character emotional story. It's very, like, emotionally driven, but I enjoyed it a lot. And a lot, to be fair, a lot of the best sci-fi comics do come from, like, sort of smaller projects and things like that, too. Like, there is a lot of big-budget ones, but a lot of the best ideas originally come from a book or a short story or a thing first. Yeah. All right, uh, so to wrap up, you can find us on Twitter at FansLabPod and on yes. all your other favorite social media. You can find us as well. Just look up Fans Labyrinth. Yeah, hope you enjoyed the episode. Christopher Nolan's yeah. movies. They're something. Yeah, please feel free to give us your opinions on Twitter. Yell at us if Christopher Nolan is your favorite director. Oof. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Go for it. All right. Uh, we'll Holding talk to you later. my opinion. Bye. Bye.